Man, Aaron and I go, go way back. And it's been fun kind of listening to other pastors that have come through. And I was kind of teasing um, Aaron. I said, you know, every time a pastor comes through, you know, a friend of yours that comes and teaches, they always spend the first five or six minutes um, talking about how great you and Jossie are and all the wonderful things. And I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say all the bad things about you and Jossie, but um, I would have nothing to say because they're phenomenal. So uh, there really isn't, isn't anything. But um, yeah, we have a lot of history go way back in college ministry. Um, I still remember the look on his face. Him and Justin, um, we were in Arizona at a college, uh, like a college ministry thing. And I got on the flight. We, wa- we all wanted to get on the flight before to leave. And him and Justin didn't get on, and I did. And I remember looking back, waving at him from the gate as I got on the plane. So... That was fun. But hey, we are in a series here at, at Mill City. We're diving into Ecclesiastes. And I think there's some helpful things for us as we read through Ecclesiastes. If you have a Bible with you, if you have your app, open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 is where we're going to start. But I think one of the things that's helpful as we read through this seemingly difficult book of the Old Testament, this wisdom book of the Old Testament, what would be helpful is for us to settle where does our citizenship ultimately lie? Because if our citizenship, if we believe that our citizenship ultimately resides in this world, then really the book of Ecclesiastes isn't going to make a lot of sense to us. But if we, our ultimate allegiance, and if our citizenship is of another world, of God's kingdom, we might find it a little bit simpler to metabolize some of the things that are written in Ecclesiastes. They might be a little simpler, but that doesn't mean they're going to be easy because they're still challenging for you and me. So in this letter, I'm sorry, in this book that was written by the teacher or the gatherer, and again, many people believe it was Solomon who wrote this, we have to remember that the teacher utilizes this phrase, meaningless and meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You see, that doesn't mean that the things that are talked about are not important. It doesn't mean they don't matter. But I think what it means is when they're weighed against the glory of God's majesty, they don't compare. When you take eternal things and weigh them against temporal things, really the weights, the weights shift, the scales shift greatly. And so that's what he's saying. He's not saying these things don't matter. He's just saying when you compare the things of this world, the things that we pursue in this world, when you compare them to the glory that is God and the majesty that is God, they're really not going to compare. So it's helpful when we hear the phrase meaningless, we think of a scale and we think of weights on a scale. You see, I think one of the problems you and I, we find ourselves finding our worth in things of the world. And one of the things that exposes this is when we go to a funeral. You know, as a pastor, as a minister, I've been a part of a lot of funerals. And actually this last Friday, I did one of those quick trips where you fly out in the morning and fly back in the, in the afternoon or late evening. My college roommate, unfortunately, passed away. He was a guy that I'd known in college. We lived together. We played football together here at CSU. And, and I remember, um, you know, a long time ago, I started carrying, you know, funeral programs in my Bible. And I had an old mentor of mine say, actually, hey, when your friends pass away, make sure you go to their funerals. Because if you don't, they might not come to yours when you pass away. <laughs> but I went to Clark's funeral. And I remember thinking about Clark and remembering all the great times that we had living in college and playing. And and here's the reality. He won on the outside everything. I mean, All-American in college, drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers, won a Super Bowl. I mean, he had had it all. He had tasted everything. But unfortunately, there were some things internally that he was battling, and he, he ultimately succumbed to those things. 
But I remember having a conversation with him after they had won the Super Bowl, when the Steelers won the Super Bowl. I think they were playing in Detroit for that Super Bowl. And I said, Clark, what was it like to be in a Super Bowl winning locker room? And he told me how great it was and the trophy is being passed around. But then he told me, he's like, one of my teammates, his locker was right next to mine. And like, he was like crying, like sobbing. And, and it wasn't like happy tears. Like he was like really sad. And Clark was like, dude, what's up with you? Like, we just won the Super Bowl. Like, what are you, what are you crying about? And he said his teammate turned to him and said, my entire life, this was my goal to win the Super Bowl. My entire life, I worked my entire life to get here. And now I'm 25 years old and I've achieved my dream and I have nothing else to live for. You know, when you put your ultimate faith and you put all of your worth in things of this world, unfortunately, we're going to find ourselves wanting. So today my assignment is to help us think a little bit about what the teacher said concerning money. And what we're going to find is the reality of what we see here. It's actually not about money. And it's not about possessions. It's about our perspective and it's about our posture before God. Because money is one of those things that we can save it, we can spend it, we can invest it, or we can waste it. Money can bring us together or money can literally tear us apart. Money can convince us that we need certain things, and there always seems to be this offer of deception and security and stability when it comes to finances. But whatever money represents to us, we have to remember that we are kingdom people, and we have to discover and rediscover how best to honor God with our finances. How do we honor God with what we have and maybe what we want? And so that's what we're going to be taking a look at. I literally work with a population of people whose literal life worth is dependent upon the opinion of media, of, of general managers, of coaches, of other players, of what social media thinks. And their literal worth, the team will say you are worth this much money dependent upon how you perform on the field or on the court or on the ice. And so I work with a group of people that realize that everything they do is actually a, 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 a training ground or they're on display all the time. And how they perform is actually dependent upon how much they are or how much their worth is dependent upon how they perform. And yet here we find ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We see the teacher realizes this is something that we all wrestle with. So he gives a series of reasons for not falling into the trap of making the pursuit of wealth life's goal. You see, if, 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 if we take a look at money and realize that money is neither good nor bad, it's just a thing. It's just an ordinary thing. But just like throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, you've taken a look at the problem with it, it only has power when we give it power. One of the core concepts of Ecclesiastes and one of the principles is ordinary things end up becoming ultimate things. And we settle into this thing called worship. Because really, what you worship will determine where you find your worth. Let me say that again. What you worship will determine where you find your worth. If we find our worth and our identity in things of this world, then we're going to worship things of this world. That's, that's literally where we're going to find ourselves. And that's the definition of idolatry, as we've talked about. An idol is something that we worship but an icon is something that we worship God through. So how do, we, how do we prevent ourselves from worshiping things of this world? How do we prevent ourselves from falling into this trap of idolatry, of, of literally becoming what we worship? It's a difference between a window and a wall. 
If we worship idols, and basically it's just, a, it's just a wall. It ends right there. But if we view the things that God has given us, our talents, our relationships, our skills, our education, our background, our ethnicity, everything that God has given us, if we worship God through that, then we get to taste and see why God created us and what he created us for. And so we find ourselves right here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. Meet me here. And this is how the writer and the teacher starts. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. And if you write in your Bible or underline, I encourage you to underline that word, loves money or loves wealth. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? You see, what he's saying is wealth is both addictive and unsatisfactory. Wealth can actually attract these human leeches. What he's saying in verse 11, they attract these human leeches who give the rich man or rich woman, they don't give that person peace. And then he moves on in verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet. When you work hard and you sleep and you rest, it is sweet. Whether they eat little or eat much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. You see, what he's saying is the focus and identity of wealth doesn't give peace or rest, but only promotes insomnia. Because if our identity is based, if our worth is based on what we have, we're going to find ourselves worrying about those things. And we oftentimes worry about things, and that exposes what we worship. I remember years ago, in about 2014, my wife and I, we stepped away from a church that we had been leading, and we were examining where God was leading us, and what would we do? And we stepped into this ministry called Athletes in Action. And so it's a missions organization, so we're missionaries, and we would raise support, which was a huge leap of faith for us. And over the years, we've watched God provide, and we've watched God withhold, and we've gone without, and our staff account's been in the negative, and we haven't gotten any paychecks, and that pattern has repeated itself over and over and over again. I remember specifically at night, it was about four or five years ago, and our staff account was pretty negative, and we hadn't gotten a paycheck in about three pay periods, so about a month and a half, we hadn't gotten a paycheck. And I remember laying in bed, literally crying, wondering, how is God going to provide? But here's what I can tell you. I have not missed a meal in the last eight years we've been on staff. You could probably tell. (laughs) I have not had to sleep out in my car or sleep out in a tent unless it was on a camping trip. Like, God has always provided. And so as we look towards moments and seasons of our life where our support or things are a little bit low, we can look back and trust that God has come through and that God will continue to come through. In verse 13, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. You see, the love of wealth often causes a person to hoard, even to the point of causing suffering to him or herself. That it's not wrong to save, and I want to be very clear on this, like it's not wrong to save, it's not wrong to invest, it's, it's, it's actually good to be concerned about money and finances. As a missionary who raises support, like I need to be concerned about our finances, and, and as a pastor, Pastor Aaron and the team here, they need to be concerned about the finances. But the problem isn't being concerned, the problem is when we become consumed by things. 
Like it's okay to be concerned about the things that we have and where is this money coming from and we've got to replace the transmission. It's good to be concerned about those. But there's a difference between being concerned and being consumed by and that's exactly what the teacher is saying. I've got a friend who's a financial planner and he helps people stay in this concern category so they won't be consumed. And one of the things he talks a lot about is disarming money so it's no longer an emotional thing and it just becomes an ordinary thing. And his financial planning, I believe financial planning, actually helps us stay in the concern category, not the consumed category. You see, wealth is an, is an insecure basis for happiness because it could be easily lost or impacted by a bad business venture. Like, like, we, like we see and we are seeing that how we handle wealth and how we view wealth, it actually says a lot about us. I remember hearing this from a, for, uh, I heard this from somebody and I started adopting this for myself. I've got a 14-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old daughter. And I know at some point in the future, there's going to be a young man that's going to come to me and is going to ask, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to ask you know, one, your, your daughter to marry me. And I told a friend of mine, I said, well, this is what I learned. This is what I'm going to do. When that day comes... I'm going to simply ask him for two things. I'm going to ask him for his last two years of tax returns and his credit score. And I remember I was talking, I was talking to a friend of mine and they're like, dude, isn't that little like invasive and intrusive? And I was like, I don't care what the number, like they can black out the tax returns. I just want to know that he did them and that he can find them. Like, that's all I want to know. And with the credit report, I just want to know, can he follow through with his responsibilities with what he said he's going to follow through with. Like I say that tongue in cheek, but the reality is how we handle the stuff that we have actually says a lot about us. In verse 15, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Like wealth is certain to disappear at death. Like in all my years, I've, you know, I've said as a pastor and a minister, I've done a lot of funerals. I haven't seen many trailer hitches attached to Hertz's. Like Hertz's, they just don't have trailer hitches because you can't take a U-Haul with you. And that's what, that's what the writer is literally saying. It's like you come naked from your mother's womb. As everyone comes, they depart the exact same way. Listen to how Paul says this to his, to his disciple Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verse, verse 7 through 10. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from their faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You see, I think the imagery that Paul uses here when he talks about that, the, that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin. The phrase plunge people, it's almost like the idea of a boat being pulled down because it's sinking. And, and if you think about a boat being pulled down because it's sinking, you know, boats don't sink, sink because of the water outside of them. Boats sink because of the water that gets in them. And if you think about even the Titanic, the way the Titanic sunk, it, it, it hit an iceberg, but it wasn't the iceberg on top. It wasn't the part on top that sank the Titanic. It's what was underneath the water, cut little slits in the midst of, in the, midst of the base of the boat. And so the boat plunged, was pulled down. 
You see, if we're not careful, this is the imagery that Paul is using, that if we're not careful and we start wanting to love money and love wealth, and if all we want to do is get rich, and all we want to do is find our security in things of this world, then without even knowing it, we're going to be pulled down because the water that's outside actually gets inside and pulls us down. And then there's this transition that the teacher makes in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse Verse 16 is where he starts. And there's three points that I want to make. There's three points that are made here. In verse 16, he says, This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart, and what they do, they, they gain. Since they toil for the wind, they can't attain it. All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. So here's the first point. Life is wasted when it's spent in a quest for more money. Like life is wasted when it's spent in a quest for more money. Worse than that, it's filled with anger and gloom. You see, the darkness in which this person eats is metaphorical for isolation and joylessness. And then he continues in verse 18 through 20. This is what I've observed to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. So this is good. It is good to toil. It is good to appreciate, to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their labor. In verse 13, moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. You see, to be able to rightly and fully enjoy things that, that of this world is a gift of God's grace. And so God says it is okay to enjoy things of this world. Just don't find your worth in them. There's a difference there. And as you look at the theme that we've been looking at, we're going to continue looking at, we're going to see the second point to what he's saying. It's good to enjoy the things of this world. It's good to enjoy the fruit of our labor. And then we move on to chapter 6, and then he starts talking about there's nothing more pitiful um, than to be rich and unable to enjoy it, because no amount of prosperity can make up for a life without joy. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1. He says, I've seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavy, heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, so they lack nothing their heart desires. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. You see, he's going to continue, and as we continue in verse 3, it's good for us to be reminded that within this culture, there was three traditional conditions for happiness. Three traditional conditions for happiness in this, in this Jewish culture, in this Jewish context, were wealth, long life, and many children. So with that in mind, let's take a look at verse 3 through 6. He says, a man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial. We'll talk about that in a moment. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Now that's problematic, and we'll talk about that in a moment. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does the man. Even if he lives a thousand years, twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. So obviously he's talking about having a hundred children or living 2,000 years, and those are obvious exaggerations. 
But when he talks about, when he says this reality that in his prosperity doesn't receive a proper burial, most rich people in this culture would have received an incredible elaborate funeral. And it's hard to see how the teacher would regard a joyless life as vindicated by a nice burial. Some have suggested, some theologians have suggested that this hypothetical rich man that's being talked about here didn't receive a burial because he was despised or had committed some crime or actually broke the law or stepped on people to gain his, his wealth. And so we take a look at the reality of not having a proper burial is shameful. So again, the writer is really going into depth and detail about how shameful this type of life would be to find your worth and to worship things of this world things that are created rather than the creator. Now let's go back in verse 4 and 5. It refers to the miscarried child. And, and at first I want to recognize that probably brings up a lot of emotions for some of us. Like my, my wife and I, remember we, we had a stillborn child and it was devastating for us as we were farther along in our, in our pregnancy. So when I read stuff like this, it, almost, it brings up some emotions of like, why do you have to go there? But as we look at the context of this, it refers to this miscarried child who goes from the darkness of the womb to the darkness of death. But what the, what the writer is saying is it's superior to the rich man. He or she is superior to the rich man because he or she has not wasted a life pursuing something that is meaningless. <coughs> you know, back in um, the summer of 2000, in the fields of Tennessee, there was a gathering of young people. There was a gathering, and it was, it was the one-day gathering. It actually started the Passion Movement. And there was a man named John Piper. And I remember John Piper spoke at this conference. I was not at this conference, but I've heard about it. And I remember hearing about the sermon that John Piper gave. Thank you very much. And I remember hearing about the sermon that John Piper gave, and the name of the sermon was Don't Waste Your Life. And I remember when I heard that sermon, it radically transformed who I was. I'd just become a follower of Jesus a couple years before this, I was considering what God would do with my life. And I remember John Piper told a story about two elderly women that were in his church in Minnesota. And these two elderly women, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards, both in their 80s, were nurses and they were medical docs. And they actually traveled to Cameroon on a medical mission trip. They went from city to city and village to village, driving and serving and then one day, the brakes gave out on their Jeep, and both of them went over a cliff, and both of them had died. <clears throat> and I remember John Piper gives this sermon, and he asks the crowd of college students of 20-something, he said, was this a tragedy? And of course, many people said, absolutely, it's a tragedy. But the reality is they gave their life for the gospel. They literally gave their life for eternal things. And then what John Piper did is he pulled out an article that was in Reader's Digest. And this is what he read. He said, that wasn't a tragedy because Laura and Ruby, they gave their life for something that matters for eternity. He says, what's a tragedy is this. Bob and Penny, they took an early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Like that's a tragedy when you start to live for things of this world. Our greatest temptation isn't that we don't love God. Our greatest temptation is that we allow other things to not only coexist in our lives, but we, we let them define our lives. Like when we try to find ultimate comfort 
in this world. And I think Jesus knew about this. He knew about this in us. And contrary to popular belief, Jesus did not talk about money more than any other topic. But 11 of his 39 parables were about managing money and managing stuff. Like he knew that we were going to be consumed with provision and property. He knew that our priorities would be distorted. He knew the things of this world could not satisfy. I love how C.S. Lewis says this, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Like this world is not our ultimate home. And this is why where we view our ultimate citizenship is essential. Like it's important for us. When, our, when ultimate security here on this earth and all of our energy and all of our focus will go to making our time here as comfortable and as secure as possible, that's when we know we've fallen into this idol worship trap. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, is talking about. You know, pastor and author Tim Keller in, from New York recently passed away and went to be with the Lord. Listen to this quote that, that he said. This is before he passed away, obviously. When he was diagnosed, he said, since my diagnosis, Kathy and I have come to see that the more we tried to make a heaven out of this world, the more we grounded our comfort and security in it, the less we were able to enjoy it. To our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are actually able to enjoy it. You see, I think it's important for us to consider the, our, our existence in this world. I want to show you this illustration that I saw years, years, years ago, and it impacted me greatly. And I want you to think about this rope here as our existence. I want you to think about this rope as like all the time that we're going to spend for all of eternity. And this rope goes on and on and on and on for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years. Like this is our full existence. And this little part right here, this little purple colored part is our time on this earth. And as we take a look at our time on this earth, compared to all of the millennia that we are going to be in existence, and we actually see that this little colored part is where we're at right now. Some of us are about here. Some of us are here. But here's the problem. Here, here's what we do. The problem is we have all of this time to think about for all of eternity, and we are so consumed with how can we make this little part as comfortable as possible. Like we spend all of our energy of how do I get ahead and how do I move forward? But here's what we have to realize. The scriptures tell us that the decisions we make here actually will impact how we spend the rest of the life that we have with God. And not only for us, the way that we share the gospel, the way that we live our lives actually allows us to impact other people so that they live differently. But we get so consumed about this little tiny part. I've literally had people tell me, Reza, you're stupid. You shouldn't be doing what you're doing right now. You should say certain things or you should do certain things or you could actually make more money if you went into another profession. I think to myself, no, man, I'm not stupid. You're stupid because you spend all of your time like so focused on all of this but the reality is we have like all of this to think about and to worry about. You see, the trials that we go to and the difficulty that we experience and the ups and downs of this colored part, it's not that they just don't matter. It's not that they're meaningless. It's simply 
when weighed against the glory that we get to experience with God for all of existence, it doesn't compare. You see, and this is what, I, this is what I'm pleading with you. This is what John Piper pleaded with those, with those college students, those 20 some. This is what I'm pleading with us. To, to, to be concerned about the things of this world, but to not be consumed and to be able to put them in their rightful place. You see, the kind of foundation you build your life on will determine the kind of house that you can build. The kind of foundation that you choose to build a house on will determine the kind of house that you're actually able to build. In Matthew 7, Jesus talked about this, and he reminds his followers to ensure the foundation of their lives is on a solid rock. In his famous words, he talked about a man who built a house And there was a man who built his house on sand, and the storm came, and the winds blew, and the house fell. And then there was another man who actually built his house on solid rock. The same weather, the same storm, the same wind, the same rain came, but his house didn't fall. Not because he was a better builder, but he chose to build on a different foundation. And this is what I want to plead, and I believe this is what the teacher was pleading with us. When we find our identity in anything else but God's solid foundation, we risk building a house or a life destined to be unlivable. In other words, condemned. You see, taking a look at some of the words that Jesus said, Jesus led us and he talked to us, and he said this, so don't worry of saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So my question for us, will we live for our kingdom, our little K kingdom, the little colored part? Or will we actually live for God's big K kingdom for all of eternity? Where are we going to put our focus Where are we going to put our attention? Where do we find our ultimate worth? Because if it's in anything beyond God's ultimate kingdom, then we're not building our house on solid rock. And the decisions we make and the determination we make will impact our life for all of eternity. There is never a lack of provision in God. There isn't a lack of provision. There's a lack of priority. Seek first his righteousness and all will be added to you. You see, if you seek things, you'll miss the kingdom. But if you seek the kingdom, the things will be tossed in and get thrown in as well. So oftentimes we ask God to send provision, but he can't send provisions where there's wrong priorities. And there's no room for his provision when we haven't taken out the garbage, the things that are no longer beneficial for us. What if we used it all to live for God's kingdom? Like, what if we actually lived, like, what if we thought the decisions I make and where I find my worth right now actually say a lot more about me than I realized? This is Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So the question that we have is, what are we going to do with the life that God gave to us? Are we going to use it to make a great name for ourselves? To get everything we ever wanted, to have the greatest color part ever? 
Here's the reality. We're free to do that. We can do that. God says, if that's what you want to do, go ahead and do it. But you are going to miss some of these incredible things that I have for you. Will you be faithful stewards of what God has given you? And I pray that I can be a faithful steward of what God has given me. Not just financial, but the people, the men in my life, the family, the gifts, the opportunities. You see, to make a difference for the kingdom of God, it's not about what we have. It's about what we'll offer. Every one of us have been given things that we could offer for God's eternal big K kingdom. In a nutshell, I'm asking, as Louis Giglio says, will you trade the lead role in your own story for a supporting role in God's story? That's a decision you and I have got to make. So this year, as we are diving into this word practice, I have a practice for us to, to engage in. And here's the practice. I want us to read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, through chapter 6, verse 12, what we've do- dove into here this morning. And I'd like us to pray Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Just take a look at that psalm. And I'd encourage you to read it and put yourself in it and reflect on your relationship with money and status and your worth and consider where your worth ultimately comes from. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to gather with your people and to talk specifically about the things that you've given us. And as we consider our life for all of eternity that is represented in this rope, I pray, God, that you would remind us continually that we have been created for eternity, that yet we are a part of this world and we see things dimly right now, but one day we will see clearly. And until that day comes, Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to help us to counsel us, to guide us, and to lead us into understanding who we are and whose we are. That we do not ultimately belong to this world, but we're created for another one. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.